You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Rio Ewers, author of the new novel, No Second Chances. Stephen King read an advanced copy of No Second Chances and wrote on Twitter, no Second Chances is a rip-roaring Hollywood noir that smashes the pedal to the metal. Rio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be here. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel, No Second Chances yet, how would you mm-hmm. describe the novel? Uh, it is uh, cinematic. It's modern-day, uh, action-packed. A thriller that's set for the the most part in Los Angeles uh, against the backdrop of the sort of Hollywood elite uh, drug trade, um, and uh, it, it ventures out into the Mojave Desert and into Nevada in in the latest stages of the book. It's about um, Kitty Ray. She's a young, beautiful, uh, determined woman who moves to Los Angeles like uh, so many before her to pursue her dreams of fame and fortune and unfortunately she lands on the wrong side of a drug dealer a charismatic uh, viking wannabe by the name of johan fly um it's kitty's neighbor luke kingsley who steps forward to help her out although luke has his own issues to contend with he's um he's a former actor whose career uh was dropped um shall we say, unceremoniously in the trash can when uh, his his famous wife, uh, soul singer Lisa Hayes, she disappeared without a trace and everybody thinks Luke killed Lisa. So he's going to do whatever it takes to find his wife and get his life and career back on track. And it's while Luke is helping Kitty that he uh, discovers a clue about his wife's disappearance. So he and Kitty team up and they sort of set out to, to try and find her. Uh, but obviously it's not going to be that easy with this crazy drug dealing Viking hop on the heels. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of action. It's some great cinematic set pieces, uh, strong, deep characterization, you know, with Kitty, Luke and, and Johan and yeah, all together. It's, it's a lot of fun. 
That's great. I'm curious. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write No Second Chances? Uh, yeah, you know, it was kind of a weird one, really, because, um, you know, most of my story ideas, they, they start with, you know, like a, like a little spark of an idea, you know, maybe a scene. Um, but this was different because with, with No Second Chances, I actually had uh, Luke, the actor, and Kitty, the the wannabe actress, in my in my head for a while, they were just kind of hanging out there, looking for a story to kind of fold me to fall into. And I didn't do too much with them to begin with. I check in every now and again, and uh, you know, see if anything stirred, anything was was um, you know <laughs> you know ready to get going with them. Um, and actually, it was only when another character, Johan Floy, the uh, the sort of charismatic YouTube star come Viking was only when he entered the scene that I saw how Luke and Kitty could come together and I saw how the three of them might work together and all these little story elements started to attach themselves at that point. Again, I didn't jump into writing the novel straight away. I just let it kind of ferment for a little while. And um and, and then suddenly I had a couple of like, you know, these cool cinematic set pieces in my head and thought, well, that would that would be cool. If I could make that work, then yeah. And from that point on, it really caught fire. And I knew that I had, um, I had a book, but the characters came first, which is, which is unusual. Um, and, and it's not like I built the story around them. I, I just allowed them to find the story. If that makes any sense. I didn't force anything. It just sure. it was all very organic. And it, it was, it was a different way of, of approaching a novel. Uh, but it, it felt good. It felt like the characters had always been there and, and they found the story that they were meant to find. That's great. Well, can you tell us about your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first stories or your first novel published? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been writing stories ever since. I mean, it was the only thing I enjoyed doing at school. I really wasn't one for math and I really wasn't one for gym and and you know geography and history and those other things it was just english really and uh and writing stories in particular um and i used to do it at home i used to actually uh steal the uh appropriate the exercise books from school you know like the lined notebooks <laughs> and uh because you know <laughs> why not and i used to go home and fill them with stories and um that was how I spent most of my evenings and weekends. That never actually just still what I do. I still spend most of my evenings and weekends doing that. Um, but I don't obviously appropriate notebooks from school anymore. Um, <laughs> we've, we've progressed from that phase. Uh, yeah. So I guess when I was 15 and 16 years old, I realized that people actually made pretty decent money writing books and it might be a good way to earn a living. As I said, I wasn't exactly, um, you know, enamored with geography and history and other, other things. So I was never going to be like a teacher or, or <laughs> you know, a professor or anything like that. I kind of felt that writing was the way I had to go because it was the only thing I actually enjoyed. Um, yeah, and it was around that time that I started writing stories and looking at, looking at the market, trying to land an agent. And it took years, years and years to, and, and back then we're talking, you know, 1987, 88, something like that. They did have you know, self-publishing wasn't an option. Um, right. They didn't really have like vanity presses or micro presses. You either were good enough to be published by a big publishing house or you weren't. There really wasn't 
a sort of gray area there. And when I was 16, 17 years old, I was not good enough to be the not even close, you know, but you know, I kept going, kept at it, kept believing in myself, worked hard, uh, and gradually got better. And eventually, yeah, I landed, uh, I landed, I had a couple of agents over the years. We didn't always see eye to eye. Um, but you know, eventually I, I found my way to, um, you know, surrounding myself with the people I needed to surround myself with, not just, um, a, you know, the right agent, but also writing friends and the community was fantastic in offering advice and helping out and making introductions. And yeah, eventually I, I, I found my way into, uh, publishing with a, a major publisher. It's this great yeah. feeling after all that time, I can tell you. And, and you said years and years, I'm curious, what kept you going during that time? Um, the fact that really, it was really the fact that with each book I wrote and with each, I mean, there were a few sort of years where, you know, I, I didn't write as much, but I was always writing. There were a few years where I didn't, you know, I wasn't at it every day and, and submitting and, um, and, and you have to remember as well, that this was back when you had to send a submission letter to sure. an agent. No email. Saying, yeah. No email. <laughs> so you had to write, you have to type it out and send it off and it could be months before you even got a response, you know? So everything was very slow. Um, and it was the hope that really kept me going. And the fact that it seemed that with each chance, each shot I took, each whack at the pinata, I was getting closer. You know what I mean? I get, mm -hmm. I get a little closer every time. And I, and I kept thinking, it would be crazy to give up now because I'm, I'm getting there. You know, this is progress and, um, just, yeah. So tenacity, uh, the fact that I didn't really want to do anything else with my life. Um, I was determined at the bit stuck between my teeth and I was going to, I was going to go for it. And, yep. you know, it's still, you know, that's still the case. You know, I'm, I'm blessed where I am right now, but you always want to hit that next level, right? You want, you want the next big thing to come along. You're never satisfied. Sure. Um, and it's, that's, that's both wonderful in that, in that it keeps you motivated, but it's a little bit frustrating frustrating as well because sometimes you just want to sit back and say hey look what i've done look where i am instead of always wanting that that next big thing but you know i, I think it's human nature to always want a little bit more sure well i mentioned at the at the very beginning of the interview this tweet that stephen king sent out about your new novel no second chances i'm curious um, a, how did you hear about that tweet? Did you see it yourself or did someone, e uh, text you or email you? And then what was your reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't say I know Stephen King, but I mm -hmm. connections to Stephen King's family. I'm good friends with both of his sons, Joe sure. and, and Owen. So there's a, there's a connection there. Um, and he emailed me, you know, I'd sent him a copy of the book. Um, I, I usually send copies out to, um, you know, friends and, and writers with sure. the arc when it comes in. Um, and like, Stephen King had a copy and, you know, I wasn't really expecting anything from it, but uh, he emailed me, um, kind of came out of the blue and he said, I just read no second chances and loved it. Um, good job basically. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a moment I have to say, because, you know, not only is it a great accolade for, for the book and, you know, sets it up, you know, moving into the, the, the months and the weeks before publication. But for me growing up as a huge Stephen King fan, 
that was that was both you know surreal and and wonderful and I don't think my feet touched the ground for about three weeks following that email. <laughs> it was yeah, it was just beautifully surreal. That's I still amazing. look at that email now and think, oh my god, he's actually yeah. talking about my book. Wow. Yeah. So, so what was your writing process when you were working on No Second Chances? Is, um, were you, were you, uh, did you work from an outline or is it more of an organic process? How did that work for you? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm more of an organic writer, seat of the pants. I think everybody calls it. Um, I don't really work to an outline. I've never, to me, that always feels like either writing in a cage. I like the idea of being able to stretch my wings and fly if, if I need to, you know, rather than, you know, penning myself in by this strict outline. I did have a pitch that I'd sent to my editor, um, William Morrow. Um, and I stuck to that pretty closely, but it wasn't an outline. It was, it was, I don't know, a page and a half of, you know, story basically. Uh, this is where it starts. This is where it's going to go. And this is where I, I think it's going to end. And that was a guide. And as I said earlier, I had these set pieces in my head that, you know, much like the characters, I didn't force anything. I didn't force these set pieces into the book. They were just like, you know, waypoints on the, on the, on the journey. I was trying to hit one mm-hmm. destination, hoping to hit one destination after the next. So I used them as waypoints and it was, um, it's the way I write all of my books. It's, it's thrilling and exciting. It's good that I don't always know what's going to happen because I hope that means that the reader doesn't know what's, what's always going to happen. Um, yeah. So I, I would get up every morning, 6am. This is how I, how I usually work. And, uh, I'm usually done by 11am and then the afternoons I spend, you know, doing all the administrative side of being sure. an author, which is a lot of emails and, and that kind of thing and edits and reading back the stuff that I'd done earlier that day. Um, so yeah, you know, after I don't, I don't put a lot of emphasis on daily word count. I'm not one of these, these authors who says I got to get my 2000 words in today or 3000 words or whatever it is. I, I do what I, what I manage to do and whether it's 500 words or 1500 or 3000, as long as I happy at the end of, of that day's output, then I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. You know, that's, that's what, you know, even 500 words a day, that's, that's a novel in six, seven months. Right. So yeah, I don't put too much, I'm, I'm definitely more into the, even in those early stages, more the quality than the, than the quantity. Um, but always at the end of the book and you know, continuing with the, the process and the seat of the pants process, which is what I take, there are always plenty of you know, um, notes that I've made along the way. And I, and I often have to go back, always have to go back and tighten up the, the strings to make sure everything, you know, sounds and plays great. And, and then obviously we, we send it off to the editor, right? Firstly, I send it off to my, um, I have three or four regular beta readers that I mm-hmm. use and they've been invited. They're, they're author friends of mine and they, they're always invaluable when it comes to, um, uh, offering advice telling me which parts work and which parts don't work. And so I go through the book again with their notes and I send it off to my editor and, and that's always fun too. <laughs> that's great. Well, are you working on a new novel now? I've just started work on a new novel. I've had a lot of, I, I was doing a comic book actually for DC comics, which was so much fun. 
It's called a refrigerator full of heads. And um, <laughs> that was actually with, with working with Joe Hill on that one. Uh, just so much, so much fun. And that took, uh, that probably took, we just finished it. Actually, we just wrapped it. Six, seven months to get through that. Um, so, and I've been doing quite a bit of promo for, for No Second Chances. And recently I've been able to get started on a new novel very don't want to say too much about it just yet sure. because yeah, yeah. obviously it's uh still in the very early stages where and as i just said i i don't really know what's going to happen but uh i'm confident that it's i like where it's going and again it's you know like no second chances in my the novel before that lola on fire it's it's another you know full throttle action thriller <laughs> with plenty of cinematic moments and um yeah i, I I, I just the the sort of pitch um to myself almost while I was thinking about it this is sort of the Quentin Tarantino hoods um directed Charlie's Angels that's the vibe that we're going that, with that sounds like a good a good uh it sounds like a good description it sounds like it could be a lot of fun that's I, I'm already enjoying it yeah it's <laughs> plenty of uh kick-ass uh female strong female characters and um yeah, just it's going to be balls to the wall action. I I can't wait to to get stuck into it even more. That's great. I'm curious, and this might sound like an, an odd question. I'm curious. Do you have a writing bucket list? Maybe a genre that you haven't written yet, or a novel idea that you can't let go of over the years, but haven't written yet? Yeah, there's there's actually a novel I want to write. Um, uh. I don't know how much to say about it because I don't know whether I will. It's just a sure. literary, it's more of a literary novel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it might be a little bit close in theme. There's a movie called, I'll have to watch the movie again, but there's a movie with Tom Hanks called Joe versus the Volcano, I think. Right. Um, and I, and I, I did see it when it first came out and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm blanking on it a little bit, but I think it's about a guy who's terminally ill, who's who jumps into a volcano or something or to 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 appease the the gods or whatever it is and it's a similar theme um to that so i'd have to go back and, and check but it, I, I will say that it involves a great white shark <laughs> and and i want to call the novel bateman and um that's about all i'm gonna say on it i don't know gotcha. if i'll ever i'll ever write it I, right it's sort of uh maybe when i'm you know 70 years old and i'm out with you know other ideas i'm all action thrilled out and, <laughs> you know i want to just write something a bit I actually wrote a novel, uh, published it back in 2012, which was more of a sort of literary whimsical, I call it a metaphysical fantasy. It was called Westlake Soul, and it was about a surfer who um, has a terrible surfing accident, goes into a permanent vegetable state, and uh, everybody thinks he He's uh he's a vegetable. He can't he can't talk. He can't walk. He has no response to any sort of stimulus. But on the inside, he's he's developed the mind of a super genius. So he can you know he can talk to his dog and he can read his his parents' thoughts and he can astral project. Um, and it was it's probably the book of mine that was that was. I don't know. That's probably the book they'll bury me with, to be honest with you, because that's <laughs> the one that everybody everybody really loves. And uh, so then this this book that maybe i'll write one day with the great one ship white chuck is in that sort of camp do you know what i mean it would yeah yeah it would be that sort of thing a little bit silly and a little bit whimsical but sweet and, and, and fun and yeah we'll see um 
other thing. I'd love a bestseller. That would be great. And New York Times, <laughs> that's definitely on the bucket list. Wouldn't mind the, the movie adaptation. Of um, course, of course. Yeah, those well, regular, check them off the list. That would be great. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, probably not to follow my advice because it took me years to get anywhere. <laughs> Don't listen to me. No, in all seriousness, um, you've you know you've got to read every day and you've got to write every day. Read books outside of your your genre. Read widely. Read off, and um, definitely. Get beta readers you can trust. And that's invaluable. Um, they they will offer advice that will only make your book better. Don't be too proud. Don't be afraid to, you know, um, take a few you know shots to the gut when it comes to listening to truths about the book. And honestly, the the biggest piece of advice, I think, the best advice is to embrace your rejections um, and to learn from them. Um, like I said, when I started out, uh, there wasn't the option of, you know, vanity presses and self-publishing. And I know that at the time I would have taken those options, but I'm mm -hmm. so glad they weren't available now because it would have meant that so much of my work that wasn't ready to be seen and wasn't ready to be read would be out there and available now. Um, and I'm glad that it's not, I'm glad that it's safely locked away in a dark box somewhere, which is where <laughs> it deserves to be. Uh, it's too, it's all too easy just to take the easy way out. Um, but really it rejections are a, a good way to, to learn, to stoke the fire and, uh, and, and, and to come back stronger. That's great. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? I just read, talking about Quentin Tarantino, I just read the um, novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, I really enjoyed that. That was, uh, that was fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie, so it was really good to get some behind the scenes. I think you've got, to, you've got to have seen the movie and you've got to have enjoyed the movie to really get something out of this. Um, and it's Tarantino, so... Uh, you know, he goes off on these tangents, but for me, that was always fun. Um, and I also read recently, uh, Road of Bones by Christopher Golden, which just came out and I highly recommend that. That's, um, if you like atmospheric horror, um, I, it's one of the best sort of atmospheric horror novels I've read recently in the sort of, um, John Carpenter's The Thing and Dan Simmons' The Terror, that sort of, you know, deep, cold, chilling, uh, atmosphere dripping, uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic novel. Yeah. Uh, not, I, I would, it, I would definitely say it's a horror novel, but it works as well as a, as a thriller. So, um, I wouldn't, if, you know, anybody's out there and they don't read horror, I wouldn't let that put you off because, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it works as a thriller as well. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your writing and your novels? Best place would be uh, to start at my, with my website, uh, Um There's information there on all of my uh, novels, my short fiction, uh, comic books even. Um, it's a good place to start. And Twitter, is uh, that's where I hang out. That's my sort of uh, social, um, you know, 
meeting place. Uh, so yeah, Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Rio Ewers at Rio underscore Ewers. So come, come see me, come follow me. And, uh, we have good times there. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Rio Ewers, author of the new novel, No Second Chances. The novel is on sale now. So go buy a copy and Rio, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate the support. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of No Second Chances by Rio Ewers, narrated by Jim Meskimen and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Her favorite time, her favorite place. Nighttime on sunset. The vibe, the opportunists, the neon signs throwing dreamy color. Everything about it made her feel alive. And at 24, Kitty wanted to feel alive. It was why she had moved here. She put her skateboard beneath her and rolled, breathing warm, tainted air. A smile, as wide and sweet as a slice of orange, broke across her face. She smelled exhaust, peppered steak, vape perfumes, a blend of colognes. A street performer played what a fool believes, and high-fived her between chord changes. Her wheels thumped off the sidewalk. Kitty Ray had been in Los Angeles four months. It still moved her, and her heart still made a hopeful, tinkling sound when she walked. She'd gone from waiting tables, to bartending, to selling jello shots at Spearmint Rhino, all within a space of eleven weeks. Then, Chris, sly boy, streeter, had discovered her. Slyboy was not the talent scout she'd been hoping for, but he lined her pockets in exchange for easy work. It was a start. It also allowed her to move out of shared lodgings in MacArthur Park to a smaller, but all hers, apartment in Silver Lake. It was several steps shy of the L.A. residence she'd imagined for herself, but she loved being on the third floor, where the rugged, hypnotically moving tops of the fan palms were at eye level. Even better was the way the setting sun caught her street and splashed the buildings with mauves and oranges. Passion hour, she called it, even though it lasted only minutes. Seven at the most. Where I live, she'd posted on Instagram, beneath a photograph of her street draped in those rich colors. Her friends back in Louisville had commented, OMFG, and sweet, and yo, still Kentucky, bitch. Her mama, whose cheekbones Kitty had inherited, as well as her propensity to dream, had added, so beautiful, baby girl, but have you met any celebrities yet? Well, she'd seen Caitlyn Jenner at a photo shoot at the Getty, and Ezra Faustino arguing with a valet attendant outside a restaurant in North Hollywood. I will fuck the fuck out of your shit, Mr. Faustino had screamed. All that was lit, but what was totally lit was the fact that she lived opposite, opposite, Luke Kingsley. Mama, who? Luke Kingsley, the troubled star of Ventura Nights and A Bullet Affair. Kitty told her mama this but Mama didn't know those movies. So Kitty told her what Luke Kingsley was really famous for. Mama, 
Oh, shit. He'd gone from a beautiful house in Sherman Oaks to a two-bedroom mission revival in Silver Lake. Kitty could stand at her window and look down into Luke's living room, could see him watching TV in his boxers and eating Captain Crunch right out of the box. And, okay, it wasn't as cool as smoking weed with Seth Rogen or bumping beautifuls with Jamie Foxx, but, like working for Chris Slyboy Streeter, it was a start. Kitty picked up the goods from the trunk of a Cadillac parked in Norma Triangle. Same caddy every time, different location. Then took a bus to East Hollywood and went to work. Twenty minutes in, she made Angelo's drop. An ounce of crystal packed into the false bottom of a Starbucks cup, tossed into a trash can outside Slick's coin-op laundry on Melrose. Angelo's boy arrived moments later. He dug through the trash can and removed the drop. Kitty snapped a photo from across the street, making like she was taking a selfie, although there was no reason for her or anyone to take a selfie in this neighborhood. She needed the photo, though, as proof the pickup had been made. Kitty had no dealings with the money side of things. She delivered the goods. That was all. She supposed Reuben, Slyboy's muscle, a man-shaped iron girder, collected. And God helped the cranker who didn't pay. Kitty pocketed her phone, put her board beneath her, and skated away. She'd pushed once, rolled maybe ten feet, when Angelo stepped out from the doorway of Gray's marketplace right in front of her, and she would have taken a spill if he hadn't grabbed her upper arm. She flipped the front of her board up, caught it in her right palm, while trying to pull her left arm loose, but Angelo dug his fingers in and grinned. You gotta be more careful, girl. His real name was Salvador Gallo, but he had earned the nickname Angelo because of his soft black curls and doll-like good looks. He'd appeared in commercials for Gap and Tommy Hilfiger in the early 2000s and was a semi-regular on the short-lived ABC sitcom Almost Always. Then his drug usage went from recreational to obscene, and that was the end of his career. Now his curls were laced with dirt, and he had black grooves between his teeth. There was a canker on the side of his nose that never healed. <laughs>